You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Ephesians 2 and verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2 and verses 1 through 10. Uh, Let us stand together. The Apostle Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Summarizing is something we all do, uh, and it's a very important skill in life. Uh, Whether or not you realize it, here would be an example of how every day we summarize things. Someone sees you tomorrow and they say to you, how was your weekend? Now we don't go through a minute by minute report, hopefully, uh, but we summarize it. We pick out the highlights or maybe the low points. Uh, For many of you, someone says, how was your weekend? You say, well, I went to the best church in the Upper Valley. Uh, that's how you start. Or how about someone says, how's your day going? How are you feeling today? We, we don't give a graphic description. We give a summary. Well, in education, summarizing is a very critical skill. It, it demonstrates someone's ability to process information, uh, to be able to retain it, but then also to be able to communicate it back. So with knowing that summarizing is something we all do, and it's an important skill in life, I have a question. How would you summarize the gospel? Why don't you think for a moment, if you were given the opportunity right now to say, you know, I need a concise, sharp summary of the gospel, what would you say? And we're going to get some help in answering that from our study of Ephesians. Because in this particular section of Ephesians, the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul is going to look at salvation, look at the gospel from the perspective of the individual Christian. And this is different from chapter 1 looked at salvation from the perspective of God. Now we're looking at it, in a sense, from an insider's perspective. How would you summarize salvation, the gospel? So look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, 
And there are three words that I hope will stick with us by the end of this message. That when we think of summarizing the gospel, we'll think of the words hopeless, rescued, changed. Hopeless, rescued, changed. So look at me at just the beginning of chapter 2 as this begins. Uh, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In other words, to summarize the gospel, you first have to comprehend maybe what Paul would say is bad news. You know, we tend to think of the gospel as good news, and it is. The word itself means good news. But to understand that good news, to comprehend the gospel, you have to first begin with this concept of hopeless, a, a sense of overwhelming hopelessness uh, for those who don't know Christ. And so you notice as he begins the personal pronoun, as for you. And as soon as we hear that, we should plug in our own names here and say, this is describing what you and I were like before acknowledging Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It would also be true that if someone does not know Christ as Savior, this is describing their present condition. So it's a very dark description of mankind, but it's a very necessary description if we're going to grab hold and accurately summarize the gospel. So let's take a closer look at what Paul means when he says you're, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Obviously, Paul's describing here and saying, before Christ, we were spiritually dead, insensitive, unable, no desire to respond to God. Now, you may immediately find yourself thinking, but, but I wasn't like an awful person. Uh, I was nice. I was friendly. Uh, you probably can think of other people who are not Christians who are friendly people, sacrificial people. They'll help you with anything. And so we need to understand by saying you're spiritually dead does not mean that you can't demonstrate certain moral and ethical qualities because you're made in the image of God. But there's not this sense of a saving righteousness or conformity to God's holy standard. And all of us were spiritually dead. Notice the two words that emphasize that, transgressions. In the plural, uh, this refers to intentional offenses. Uh, we, we had no excuse. We couldn't excuse our disobedience and opposition to God. It, it was intentional. Uh, as I'm sure Leslie and Jean will soon realize, you, you don't need to teach your grandchild how to not listen to their parents. You don't need to teach them about what it means to be selfish. It happens. Why? Because we are born dead in our transgressions. It, it's second nature to us to sin. It's actually in this guard, regard, I guess, first nature. This is what we do. But notice the second term, again, plural, sins. This word in the New Testament means to miss the mark. And that should bring the question to mind, well, what's the mark that we miss? It's, it's that we miss, we fall short, as Paul will say in Romans, 
of the righteousness of God. We fall short of the purpose for which we were created, to honor and glorify God. So here's the first part of the description of hopelessness. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. But then notice he goes on to speak in verses 2 and 3, a little more graphically, that we followed the thinking, the philosophy, the values of the world around us. Notice he says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Then verse 3 comes back to this word lived. All of us also lived among them at one time. So stopping in those two verses, you see the word lived, which is one of Paul's favorite metaphors to talk about. This is how you walked. This is how you conducted yourself day in and day out. That we were driven by the world. We were conformed to the world around us. Uh, and I think as you look around you in your everyday jobs, week and work environment, you see people who do not share the same priorities as you do as a Christian. And why is that? Because their, their thinking is conformed to the world. Increasingly, we have this thought where truth has not only become marginalized, but redefined as my truth and your truth. And so we can have two people who completely present two different ideologies, worldviews, and both of them will say, well, this is my truth. You know, the thought of absolute truth, as Scripture lays out for us, is, is missing in a postmodern world. So notice this pattern of thinking. And then he says, you know, we, we lived among them. We didn't just conduct ourselves this way. We, we lived out our values and our philosophy. So a person who does not know Christ, they are living out a mindset that is opposed to God. And I think sometimes we, we sort of forget when we see certain things in the news or we hear someone in an interview come out with some statement, it should not surprise us that that is what they said. Because if you stop and consider the mind that is behind that, how they conduct themselves, it is merely being consistent with a fallen and broken nature. Many of you have been following or uh, in the news, there's been past month or so about Epstein, this billionaire, uh, and all the fallout from his suicide. Uh, but I saw there was a documentary on his life, and I thought the title was very interesting. The title for it was one word, broken. And I thought, what an appropriate description. A, a life that was broken. Had everything else that you could name that our world would say was prestigious, uh, was a mark of success. But when all was said and done, it's just a broken life. A life that fits this description that Paul's presenting to us. And notice, you know, when we think of the gospel, it's great that we associate good news with that, but, but you but don't go to the good news before you're clear on the bad news, the hopelessness that marks the person, that marked you and me before we acknowledge Christ. But then go down to verses 2 and 3 again, and you'll notice something else there. 
Paul speaks about how we were controlled by this sinful nature and we desired to sin. Uh, especially in verse 2, the last part of the verse, he talks about the ruler of the kingdom of the air, a reference to Satan, the realm in which he, uh, by God's providence, he is able to exercise a dominion uh, right now. That that same spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now think for a moment when Paul says it's that spirit that's at work in those people. Compare that to in chapter 1, verse 19, when he looked at salvation from God's perspective. In verse 1, 19, he says, and his incomparable great power for us to believe, that power is like the working of his mighty strength. Same word. So in other words, Paul is a master of contrast. What he reminds you of is the power of God is energizing at work in us just as the power of Satan is active and energizing those who do not know him as Lord and Savior. So a perfect picture of, of direct opposites here. So we are full of hope. We have a living hope, an eternal hope. What do those without Christ have? They're hopeless. And, and, and the scary part of this from a biblical perspective is they will never see this hopelessness unless God's Spirit goes ahead and changes their heart and takes what we share with them and opens us up so they can say, yes, you're right. I am a broken individual, a broken life. Notice there as well in verse 3, he says, following its desires and thought, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So here is a life driven by a desire to oppose God, a willful desire to turn from truth and, and to accept and embrace error. And I'm sure all of us at some point have heard of some teaching. We, we've heard someone comment on a belief system and we've thought to ourselves, how can they believe that's true when they won't seem to believe Scripture, which seems much more rational and reasonable? You're right to think, I don't understand this. How, how come they can accept these other things? Because their, their minds are depraved. They're twisted. They would more welcome error and lies than they would the truth of God. So Paul presents a very dark, uh, you might say pessimistic, but very accurate view of what it means to be hopeless. And whether he was saying that as he wrote this in the first century, to us reading it now in the 21st century, it is just as true. The same thing rings. If you're going to summarize the gospel, start with the reality of what it means to be hopeless. Before we leave that thought, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And interesting that you find the pattern in Romans 8 is very similar to the pattern in Ephesians. In other words, Ephesians, Paul starts out wanting to talk about the gospel, but he's first going to talk about the bad news, how you are hopeless. Well, in Romans, Paul starts the letter that same way. He spends 
almost two and a half chapters talking about, or really three chapters almost, talking about the bad news before he gets to, but here's the answer. But if you look at Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, Paul is in the midst of a discussion about what it means to, to have the Spirit in you. Uh, that as a Christian, we are Spirit-filled. But you get to verses 6 through 8, and you have another beautiful contrast put before us. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Now, by mind, we're talking about the very heart, affections, thinking process, because you can only think in accordance with your nature. So you've sometimes heard people, they like to talk about free will, and they get into a discussion, well, doesn't free will mean you can either do good or bad? Well, that's not really how I understand Scripture to define free will. Free will is you have the ability to act, but only in accordance with your nature. So the person who is hopeless because they don't know Christ has a completely free will. Their free will will always be to choose sin, to oppose God. They're acting volitionally, volitionally. No one's forcing them, but they're only acting in accordance with their nature. So you see here, Paul's saying, but if you have a spirit-controlled mind, you can act differently because your nature is a different nature. But I hope we catch the phrase in verse 7. Not only can the person who does not know Christ, not only are they hopeless, but there is no possible way for them to submit to God's word and obey it. In other words, if, if you understand this correctly, you should find yourself thinking, oh no, is Paul saying that there's no humanly possible way for a person who does not know Christ to on their own just follow him, pursue him, obey him? That's exactly what Paul's saying. In other words, he's saying to us, the only way this can happen is by the miraculous power of God. And we'll see when we get to the third word what that means, that only God can draw someone, open our minds to accept and embrace the truth of God. So in every way, that first word summarizes an important part of the gospel, hopeless. You're hopeless without knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and pick up the second word, and that is the word rescued. Um, so given the fact that we were in a hopeless condition, this is good news. We're, we, somehow we're rescued out of that. And just the very word rescued implies something or someone outside of us provided deliverance. So notice in Ephesians 2, and this verse is 3 through 7. Uh, in particular, in verse 3, uh, depending on your translation, NIV has all of us also, or excuse me, beginning at verse 4, uh, but because of his great love for us, 
more literal translation and a better way that this should read is the first two words are, but God. In other words, those two words give you, I think, and contain the whole of the gospel. Just what does that mean? But God. In other words, now we have a dramatic contrast. Here, here's how you were. Hopeless. But now everything has been flipped upside down, reversed by an action of God. The divine rescue mission carried out by God can only be explained by the very character of God. In other words, there was nothing here, as Paul again would say in Romans, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. We had nothing to offer. We had no sort of promising offerings to put it to him. Uh, but while we were yet sinners, in other words, in a hopeless condition, and how do you explain how God would save when there was nothing that would justify that response? Well, the answer, Paul says here, is in the character of God. So he comes back to God's character. Notice in verse 4, you have God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. I find it interesting that many translations, and, and more literally, have that reverse. The first thing that's mentioned is that God is rich in mercy. And I think that accentuates a little bit better the characteristic here that it was completely undeserved. Uh, when you think of mercy, think of, we think of compassion, but it's a compassion towards those from a New Testament perspective who are experiencing the consequences of their own sin. And it's very similar to the Old Testament word, um, like God's covenant loyalty. And it's often used in the context when Israel is unfaithful, God's covenant loyalty, he remains faithful. So if we're looking at how did this sense of hopelessness, hopelessness, how were we rescued from that? Well, first, by the very mercy of God. But then we have the very comforting thought, God's great love for us. Again, a phrase that would remind us here, you should plug your own name in there. God's great love for you. And as you consider that, his love is unconditional. Now, we live in a world that craves love. We live in a world that speaks of love. But much of our world's understanding of love is very conditional. Not God's definition of love. And his very character, inherent in who he is, is his great love, his love for us. But true to Paul's theology and letters, you get down to verses 5 and 7, and Paul accentuates the grace of God. Notice at the end of verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Jumping down to verse 7, he speaks of the riches of his grace expressed in the kindness of God. And grace is one of those words we especially I think as Christians, we're, we're so used to knowing the definition, you know, yep, grace, unmerited favor, that, that we say it so quickly, we, we should really stop and think about this. Unmerited favor. Great, grace is getting what we desperately needed, 
but did not deserve. That's what we see in Christ. How, how did this rescue come about, that we were rescued? Well, it, the answer is, it's a mystery, but we see it in God's character because of who he is. So deliverance, which we experience, is a result of God's rich mercy, his love, and his grace. But the results, Paul also wants to touch on here. And he does that by using three words that, that are unusual words. In other words, you sometimes see in Paul's letters, occasionally he's describing something spiritual, and there's not a word that would fit it accurately. So Paul takes a prefix, something from another word, and tacks it onto this known word to kind of make a new word. And you see this in verses 5 and 6, talking about the results of being rescued. What, what actually happens? Here are the, the words that Paul, in a sense, coins to describe this for us. The first one is in verse, we'll pick out in verse 5, he says, made us alive. This is a phrase Paul sort of creates by combining two words together. We now are alive together in and with Christ. We, we have life. The exact opposite of being hopeless because we have been rescued from sin. That's the first word he comes up with. Notice there's a second phrase in verse 6. We have been raised up with Christ. Not only the sense of a future resurrection that awaits us in Christ, but, but presently we stand in the heavenly realms. What a, what a blessing is ours in Christ. We went from one extreme, you could argue, to the other. We were dead. Now we're raised up alive in Christ. And the third word or phrase that he coins is also in verse 6. We have not only been raised up with Christ, but he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We have spiritual blessings that await us in Christ. Our union with Christ is what has rescued us. We live differently. We think differently because of these three results, that we've been made alive, we've been raised up, and we have been seated with him. And, and the thought of being seated speaks of a, a, a finished condition, something that is unchangeable, just as Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father after ascending back to heaven. He, he's in a permanent position of ruling authority. What, what a security. What, what a thought. We weren't just rescued and put back to the beginning of verse 1. But it leads us to the third word, and that is we've gone from hopeless to rescued to now forever changed. Forever changed. And that brings us to verses 8 through 10. John Calvin, in, in describing this transformation that happens, like to put it this way, faith brings an empty man to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. What a, what a picture of contrast. 
Faith brings, faith, a gift from God, brings an empty man to God to be filled with the blessings of Christ. And as you look closely at verses 8 and 9, very familiar passage, probably one of the most familiar passages to many Christians in the New Testament, we see that your position before God and nature has been forever changed. Notice in verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. Perfect tense. In other words, Paul's saying to these Christians, I'm reminding you of something that's already happened. Your position before God has forever been changed in Christ. You, you are no longer dead in your transgressions and sins. You are raised up. You are righteous in God's eyes. Notice as well, our nature has been changed. He says, you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The reality of the gospel, that we've been rescued and changed, is that the good news is, since we never earned it, you cannot lose it. If you earned your salvation, then there's always the danger. You could lose it. You, you could do something that would change everything. But notice this thought. You were saved by grace. It removes the basis of any boasting about works of any false assurance, but we have true assurance because it's a gift. But I mentioned that verses 8 and 9 are one of the most familiar passages to many Christians, but sadly we're not familiar with verse 10, which says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So when we speak of being changed, think of, yes, it's great. Your position in Christ has been changed. You've been given a new nature. But the other change is you have been restored to your created purpose. And that is to honor and glorify God. I don't think there's any more concise way of putting that than the Westminster Confession of Faith, which in the larger catechism, first question is, you know, what is the chief end and highest purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy his presence forever. That purpose has been restored in Christ. So when we speak of here being changed, you could almost say what this is talking about is we have been recreated. We've been brought back to our created design. And that design includes two elements. We're created to do good works. Works that reflect and will glorify God. Not works that earn salvation, because we know that's not even possible. But in addition to this, the word for workmanship there is the root for our word poem. Which is kind of interesting, because I think when you think of a poem, you sort of think of something that's polished, finished, has a, a balance, a rhythm to it. Uh, that, that gives this thought of we are God's in a sense, you could say, living poems. Not only have we been created to do good works that will point to him, but I think you could flip that around. We are being prepared for those works that God has in advance decreed for us to do. 
In other words, that gives a whole new distinction now. What's going to happen this week in your life? Are, are you approaching it like not only have I been changed in Christ, but God has prepared works for me to do. And because he's prepared them, he's also equipping me to do that, which he has prepared in advance for me to do. No wonder there's so many places in Paul's letters where he talks about being devoted to doing what is good. He says it in Romans. He says it in 2 Corinthians. He says it in 1 Thessalonians. As you know, he says it in Titus, Titus 3, 7 and 8. Be devoted to doing what is good. Now we can kind of see, well, that makes perfect sense. If we see that we were hopeless, we have been rescued, and through Christ, we have been changed. So the desire would be that these three words would stick with you this week for two reasons. One is they would deepen your own understanding of what it means to say you have been saved, that you are a follower of Christ. But the second would be that you might have an opportunity to summarize the gospel to someone who needs to hear this message. To simply say to them, you know what, this is what's happened in me. I was once hopeless. I have been rescued. And, and I am forever changed by the message of who Christ is and what God has done through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the simplicity of your word. And yet it requires the work of your, your Holy Spirit in us. To have it applied and lived out. May we in every way live these truths out this week. Convict us when we're not. Encourage us when we are. Give us the strength to persevere when it is opposed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.